Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. So, did you enjoy your first official miniseries with Third Pod? I really did. I learned a ton, a ton. <laughs> like, I didn't know there was so much to do with extinctions. I know. I, I intentionally didn't want to spend a ton of time on dinosaurs. Well, they're, how could we... We had to talk about them. Oh, no. I'm happy we did. It was a great episode. But, yeah, I, the, the way... I mean, when I came about... or um the idea that I had. And yeah, I wanted to figure out like what other types of extinctions were out there. And so some of them I kind of like different eras or even volcanoes or something. But yeah, the ISS thing, like that just that threw me through for a loop when I first heard about it. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think of the ISS dying. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> okay, I have one request this time. Oh, oh, oh okay. I didn't know we were in request mode, but okay. I'm always go in for request it. mode. Okay. <laughs> Can I introduce the series this time? Oh, you most certainly can introduce our next series. Go for it. Okay. All right. Um, So back into our one word themes, we're diving into ice, or I Mm. guess tackling (laughs) ice. It's a solid. You can't really dive into it. I guess you'll hurt yourself. Anyway, one episode discusses ice in the many forms it takes, like glaciers, moon ice, fossil records, and even building materials for warships. We also discuss the effects of icy environments on biology, from cute little Arctic birds to indigenous communities in Canada. Well, that all sounds incredibly exciting, and I'm stoked for y'all to hear it. So let's get into it. Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. My name is Susan Langley. I'm the Maryland State Underwater Archaeologist. I often call my lectures, you know, what do the Titanic, the Bible, and Superman have in common? And it's Operation Habakkuk. There was an ice patrol sent out after the, or it was formed and sent out after the sinking of the Titanic to get rid of all those pesky icebergs and they'll never sink our ships again. And it was discovered that icebergs resist incendiary bombs, torpedoes, and that suddenly clicked with, well, maybe we can build our refueling depot out of ice and it can't be sunk. Right. So tell us about the first time you dove down to the wreck. So the visibility wasn't too bad. There was um, some backscatter in the summer as plant life, you know, as much as mountain lakes warm up, we did get, you know, some floaties, if you will, snow, as photographers call it. We tried in the winter one time to see if it would improve the clarity. And um, there's nothing more bizarre than standing in the middle of nowhere on a mountain lake, sweeping the lake to get the snow off the ice. Before you pull your toboggan, it felt very Canadian, pulling our toboggan with our chainsaw along and cutting a large um, triangle. You never want a circle because it can pop back in and lock you under. So you put a triangle, you push it under and stake it. And then we put all our safety lines, safety divers went down. And of course, because the ice was two feet thick, it really didn't improve. It was might've been clearer, but it was darker. So it was kind of moot. We stuck to diving in the summer. So 
I'm Heather Purdy. I'm a lecturer, associate professor at the University of Canterbury in the School of Earth and Environment. So I'm a physical geographer but a, and a glaciologist. So my research area is snow and ice and glaciers. And so a lot of people get quite a surprise when they actually get to a glacier because particularly on the lower parts of the glacier, the area that we call the ablation area, where it's hard ice, and that's where a lot of the activity, like a guiding activity occurs, and where a lot of the places, where a lot of the work I do there, it's completely different. It's it's nothing like snow at all. It's actually really, really hard ice. And um, and of course, we need to put crampons on, the, on, on people's boots to, to spikes, sort of spike metal spiky things that help grip into the ice. And, um, you know, and if you trip up and that on a glacier, it's, A, it's very slippery, and, you, and but it's also really hard. It's essentially, I always used to say to people, you know, it's like falling over on concrete. It's not like falling over in the snow. So I'm curious what the future of glacier tourism is or, or what, what you think might change or be different. As each glacier retreats, the the kind of terrain it's in will will dictate to a certain amount or will dictate kind of how that glacier can be interacted with it from a tourism perspective but we are seeing adaptation and even just a couple of weeks ago over on the west coast we were shown a sort of new trip that the company that's normally done the guide that guiding on the hard ice and are still you know still running heli hikes but they've also got e-bikes now and they're taking people up a, a road that you used to be able to drive up that now because of flooding and things the road's not maintained to a standard to have a vehicle anymore but you can still ride a bike up it and so they're actually got running e-bike trips to then walk people to a glacier viewing point so that's that's great that's a, a form of adaptation that's providing a a low cost option for people to be able to still engage with the glacier. I am Anand Pandey. I am a marine biologist by training and uh, currently I am working as uh, the program head uh, marine megafauna for the Wildlife Conservation Society India. Are there any funny or memorable stories from the field that that you remember that will uh, you know that have stayed with you that you've laughed about with colleagues with your family you know that have been really interesting things that stay with you you know as a picture in your mind? So there is this bird called a skua, I told you earlier about it. And uh, it's basically a predator bird of snow petrels. So it's like, it's like a seagull. We were walking very close to the lake and we didn't realize there is a skua nest over there. And we just walked past them. And uh, I was walking and uh, there was another colleague of mine. We two were walking and uh, I was basically trying to locate skua's nest. And he was coming with me. So he was basically a very slow walker. So I w- I'm walking and uh, he's like quite behind me. So it's very far. But suddenly I see him running towards me. So he runs straight towards me and goes past me. And there is a squaw chasing him. So <laughs> there's a very funny scene which happened. My name is Brian Huber. I'm a curator of Foraminifera, which are microscopic fossils that make a shell. Do you think in terms of the... This sort of this this scale of 4M evolution. If a paleobiologist came along a thousand years from now and took a look at the 4Ms, would the 4Ms leave a record of this human-caused warming? 
Well, you know, they're recording the change in temperature. And, you know, if you can measure the uh, changes in decades in sediments that are studied a few centuries from now, yeah, for sure, you'll be able to see this change. I mean, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, how ocean chemistry has changed since before, just before the, the industrial age and since that time. And we're also looking at ocean acidification and evidence for that since the industrial age. And, you know, there's areas where it's, you know, it's pretty discernible changes that are occurring. And so within a couple of centuries, uh, you know, judging by the rate at which temperatures are increasing now, this record of warming will certainly be recognizable in, in the 4M record. I'm Kathy Mont. I'm a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. My name is Nicholas Hassan. I'm a geoscientist at the University of Alaska, currently working on my PhD in studying the cryosphere in Earth's polar region. Do you think there's enough ice that we can both use it for human life on the moon and be able to study it? Yes, because in order to study it, we don't have to take all of it and then sample all of it and analyze all of it. What we could do is working with humans that are exploring and digging and accessing these resources is as they access the resources, if you sample the composition as you're doing so in enough detail, you can still use it because then you're creating that record that is a record long-term that can go for generations to be used for understanding. And it's the only chance you're going to get to get that record. That's super exciting. And it makes me wonder whether astronauts someday will just be able to drill down to these reserves of liquid water and have a well. Is that how that would work? Yeah, well, it it would surely require new engineering and ingenuity. And that's what's so cool about science and about particularly NASA is that, you know, it's kind of like dare to discover, because when we discover new things, we always come up with new ways to develop those resources. My name is Joel Heath. I'm the executive director of the Arctic Eider Society. We're a small Inuit-led charity based in Senekilowak, Nunavut, in the heart of Hudson Bay. And could you explain what the Siku platform is and how, how it helps achieve those aims? So our, our programs have been really kind of working to combine Inuit knowledge and science together. Um, and, you know, in some cases that's helping train people on oceanographic equipment to address their priorities or other sorts of tools. But um, part of the, the the platform is like a social network, but it's, um, you know, what might be considered in other contexts, citizen science. Um, but it's a really important distinction for us that it's not about Inuit or Indigenous communities giving up their knowledge to academics. It's about empowering them to manage their own programs and to have full ownership, access and control over their own data to run their own programs. And they can decide to share that with projects as they want to, and they can make decisions about what's more public, such as really important things like how there's dangerous ice nearby. But they can also choose on a post-by-post basis 
um, whether they want something like their secret berry picking spot to be hidden or masked, like you would mask a house on Airbnb and that sort of thing. And then the data behind every one of those observations would be written down. And if in the right platform, it could be mobilized to help provide equity across the table. So when Inuit are sitting down across the table from government or industry or academics that they're empowered and not just written off as being anecdotal or storytelling. And so that led to our first pilot study with the CQ app. There was hundreds of posts made by Inuit hunters that were hunting seals over the next couple of years. And then Lucas Yarvitangnuk, the head of the HTA and our founding board member, presented it at the Arctic Net conference showing seasonal shifts in the diets of seals from fish to shrimp. Um, based on the data that was collected. Wow, so ice is really cool. But I'm bump. It is <laughs> it in fact just, cold. It just brings me joy. Yeah. <laughs> so many dad jokes. And with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Colin Warren for audio engineering, Jay Steiner for production assistant, and our rotating cast of amazing producers. Ty Burke, Anupama Chandrasakran, Molly McGid, Devin Reese, and Sarah Whitlock. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review this podcast, and you can always find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. I know, I know. Um, you, you all are welcome, and I hope that y'all are uh, that folks are excited for the series, and we are as well. And with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Colin Warren for audio engineering, Jay Steiner for production assistance, and our rotating cast of amazing producers from Ty Park. Ugh, I need to redo that. All right. Special thanks to Colin Warren for. Pro- Were you going to say Ty Barton? I think I was going to say Ty Brook. I don't. Who is that? There is no one. Yeah. And Ty Barton. I don't know who that is either, but it came immediately into my head as soon as you started saying Barton. Maybe you like, maybe he was a a boy you dated back in high school or something. Definitely would remember a Ty Barton. (laughs)